Hello, it's Victoria from Team Girlboss. What if I told you that you no longer have to choose between style and sustainability when it comes to your shoes? Vivaya is changing the footwear game for good. Their innovative designs are made from recycled water bottles, vegan leather, and wool. So they're better for the environment and also incredibly comfortable. I seriously cannot live without the heel padding, four-way stretch, and supportive soles. They're a game changer. Whether you're working at the office, running errands, or having a girl's night out, you're bound to find a pair or three that speaks to you. Get 15% off with the code GIRLBOSS15 at vivaya.com slash girlbossradio. That's V-I-V-A-I-A dot com slash girlbossradio, or hit the link in the description. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Girlboss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy, and a firm believer that work should work for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Deepti Vimpati, the breakout star from Love is Blind season two. Deepti immigrated to the US when she was eight years old. She was a data analyst working in Chicago with no plans of ever ending up on reality TV until a friend nudged her to apply to Love is Blind's Chicago season. I think you know the rest. Deepti got engaged to a man we can describe as a walking red flag, then became a fan favorite when she ended the relationship at the altar with three words, I choose myself. Now she has a book with the same name and is empowering women everywhere to leave toxic situations and inspiring them to listen to your gut and take advantage of the opportunities that come your way. I chat with Deep D about what it's really like to look for love on reality TV, her catfishing experience, and the launch of her podcast. Keep listening. Deep D, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. I am so excited to talk to you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. I am so stoked. So I watched your season of Love is Blind and had lots of mixed feelings about it. And of course, I'm sure you have lots of feelings <laughs> as someone that went through the experience. But wanted to kind of just check in. How have you been lately? I've been good. You know, with the new year comes just new energy, I feel like. So I've been just trying to take it all in and kind of set some new goals for myself. So it's going great. I love that. So I am a big reality TV consumer and uh, a huge fan of like what it's done to bring more representation to our TV screens or to our screens in general, if you're an iPad or computer user, whatever it may be. But with that said, I really did identify with a lot of parts of your story on Love is Blind. And I want to talk about Love is Blind. But first, I want to figure out like who you were before you were like this breakout star from that season. What did you dream about being when you grew up? Weirdly, I just loved talking to people all the time. Like that's what gave me energy. So I really wanted to become a psychologist actually. And I wanted to go into therapy and like, you know, just talk to people about the problems and like, just be that listening ear for people. Why didn't you pursue getting into that line of work? Well, in this world of immediate gratification, when I was going through college, I was majoring in psychology and I realized that I had to go to grad school and it would be years of school and research and things like that. And I just really just wanted to work. I wanted to get out of the school system. And that's why I added business management and went into technology. So for folks that don't know, what were you doing before you showed up on our screens and were looking to find love without knowing this person or seeing this person ever before? 
I was a data analyst. I was a little corporate girly. I was going to climb that corporate ladder, honestly. How and why did you get into reality television? The answer is so simple. I had gotten out of a really long relationship, like six and a half years. And I took a year to just like kind of figure myself out instead of jumping into something else. And during the pandemic, randomly one day, my best friend sent me this flyer and he was like, hey, they're casting Chicago singles and I think you'd be perfect for it. And I was just like, no way are my parents going to allow me to do a reality TV show. I started filling out the questionnaire. I was like, let's just try It was so long, Avery. I literally put it down and I was like, I'm not finishing this. And then the next morning, like something just like clicked in me. I just got this vibe. I was like, you know what? I feel like I should do it. And I filled it out that day. And two days later, they reached out to me and they were like, we want you on the show. And that's easily how it happened. Yeah. You said it was a big questionnaire. You had to fill out. What do you think got you on the show? Did anyone ever tell you? Did any of the casting people say like, hey, this is what got you in? I'm curious. No, honestly, I have no idea, but I really do think it comes back to diversity because maybe there's not a lot of Indian women trying to apply for a reality TV show. It's not usually the norm. So I really think that that's probably why, but I never got a legitimate answer on that one. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's a lack of representation of South Asian women in reality TV shows? What are your thoughts on that? I didn't think that I would be somebody who would ever do something like that. So I think it's important that I did go and that I got the opportunity to share that, hey, you can be like me. You can also be very career oriented. You can be yourself. And I think the thing of it also is that in the South Asian culture, you don't really share intimate details about your life, let alone your relationship, because you have to appear that you're this perfect person and that everything is going so perfectly in your life. And that's a stigma that we need to break because vulnerability and showing your challenges is really what connects us all. And I think that that was probably one of the most powerful parts of your story is it was just so great. And I'm like, I'm speaking as a biracial Black woman. It was nice to see although I'm not Indian, another brown woman, like just doing so well and handling herself with so much vulnerability and compassion and openness through that process. And when you introduced your family and sharing that whole experience, it was just so nice to see your culture represented on television. I do believe that fortune favors the bold and you made a bold move, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny because I've seen so much growth in my parents and my family too. If this was 10 years ago, I don't think they would ever be okay with us filming in the house, showing themselves in that way. So I think we're heading in the right direction of just being vulnerable and putting yourself out there. I think a lot of good can come from that. And why do you think that your parents would have been against it 10 years ago? I think just culturally, there's no chance that they would put themselves out there like that and talk about their feelings. When we filmed that family scene where Shay came home for the first time, my parents told a very sweet story that I had never even heard before. And it was just so sweet. My dad was just sharing his feelings for my mom. I've never seen my parents kiss before. So just to have them share something like that with the world, it was so, so sweet. I was literally crying at that table. So, Wow. 
That's something that, of course, like as a viewer, I didn't know that, right? Of course, the story was centered around you and Shake and and being introduced to your parents and to know that there was this like amazing evolution happening behind closed doors that you would only know, right? Because you know your parents. That's wild. So how has being on Love is Blind completely changed your career? So you're a data analyst prior. Are you still working as a data analyst? What happened? I was trying to juggle both and I was realizing that I wasn't putting 100% into both things because I was just trying to survive a little bit. And my parents have always been the type to not take risks in life. And they're like, you know, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be an engineer, that's your path. And so for me to even go on reality TV was a big deal. But when I went to them and I was like, hey, I think I'm going to quit my job so that I can kind of figure out a different avenue. And I think there's more out there. And my dad was like, no, like, what about your 401k? What about your medical? Like, no, you can't quit. And it was a really hard and tough decision for me. But I decided, you know what, like life is all about taking risks and I can always come back to corporate life. So over the summer, I quit my job. And yeah, and that's when I decided to write the book. There might be some people listening in right now. They're like, okay, why are you a 31-year-old woman asking your parents for advice or like asking if it's okay, so to speak? Is this just something that's like a cultural thing or is this more so just a norm for you and your family? Yeah, I think it is kind of a cultural thing, especially for Indian daughters. It's considered, oh, I'm going to take care of you until you get married, which I hate when my dad used to say that. He'd be like, well, I won't worry about you as much when you have a husband. And I'd be like, I can take care of myself. But when it comes to big decisions in my life, they've always been my guiding compass. And I like to bounce ideas off of them because they've really lived through life. They've made tough decisions. And they kind of have been through it. So I really appreciate their advice. Sometimes I don't take it. And other times, you know, I really run with it. So, but I like to, you know, weigh my options, get all of the information that I need. In your book, you talk a lot about being an immigrant to the United States and leaving behind everything you knew. How did being an immigrant shape you as a person? And then of course, your career endeavors. You know, when I first got the news, oh, we're going to move. I was just like, oh, okay, cool. Like as like an eight-year-old, you're just like, all right, like, let's just go. I don't think it hit me until I got there, the cultural shock. No one looked like me. I had an accent. English was my first language. I was at an English school, but it was just so tough for me to fit in. I had to repeat the fourth grade. I wasn't able to understand my teacher whatsoever. And I was just like, I couldn't mesh well with everyone. And it was like a really hard thing for me. I I didn't know where I belonged. I was trying to immerse myself into becoming Americanized, but my parents kept trying to pull me back. You can't lose your roots. You can't lose this culture. Like you need to be doing these things. And so I was really torn actually. And so for me, it was just hard to fit in. And career wise, honestly, I wasn't even thinking about a career. I was just like, oh, I have to get straight A's. Like, that's just what I'm going for, you know? And so, yeah, you don't really talk about passion in the Indian community. You just talk about practicality. Like, what's going to make you money? What's a profession that makes you look good? That's kind of the trajectory of the career usually. My dad is an immigrant to Canada and I have a lot of friends that are from the South Asian community and black and brown friends, racialized friends. And I've thought a lot about this because I think that it's like, how is this culturally such a norm across all my racialized friends? And a part of me thinks it might have something to do with, surprise, surprise, white supremacy. 
I don't want to go into the details of that, but I think that when you're under the system that favors white folks, I think it forces racialized folks to perform in a way where we think that we need these jobs and these careers with a high level of pedigree. So we can demand respect by virtue of the roles that we play in society and the impact that we have. We feel like we have to outperform sometimes. And another layer of it also, I think, is that because you are an immigrant and you're leaving so much behind and you're sacrificing so much to be here, I remember my parents would be like, oh, like you're going to go into psychology? Like that's such an unknown for us. What kind of career are you going to have? Because we're paying so much money for you to get an education. Why can't you become a lawyer? Or why can't you become a doctor? Because that's a profound profession and we've sacrificed so much to be here that if you're not at that level, then what was all of this for essentially, right? Yeah, it's so nuanced. Growing up, both my parents came from socioeconomic disadvantaged backgrounds. They got to a point where they reached a certain level of like comfort. I'd say they were probably like lower middle class when I was in high school. And they just cared about me getting a job where I had access to money. There was no focus on me getting good grades. They didn't care if I was a doctor or a lawyer or anything. They're just like, just get a job where you make money and hopefully more money than basic living income so funny the the impact that your parents have on like what you choose to do. I remember I told my mom and dad I wanted to be an interior designer or a journalist at the time. And my mom was like, you can't make money in either of those fields. And with that, I think that there's this like expectation that you survive it and not as much emphasis on thriving. Exactly. Exactly. It's not about happiness or passion. Yeah. You talk a lot about that in your book and the relationship with your parents and work and Another thing that you talked about in your book was a time when you dabbled in catfishing, which I, <laughs> I have to talk about. You, you actually, you have a chapter in your book titled Catfishing, and you described it as the most challenging chapter for you to write. And in your book, you share a lot about your own deep insecurities, wanting to be or present as like a white, blonde, pretty girl. So for people that didn't read the book, you were catfishing, you're 16 years old, you forgot the name because you kind of suppressed the experience of this far, far away. So you can't remember the name that you used to go under, but you called her Jessica for the purposes of the book. And you found a girl that you thought was perfect from an external outside perspective, stole her photos, created a profile, and were like basically meeting and chatting with different guys and having conversations as you, but they thought that you were her. What is this catfishing business all about? Tell us a little bit more about why. I think, honestly, when I was growing up, like I said, I never fit in anywhere. And it's so funny because I honestly, I almost didn't write this chapter. I had it on the back burner. I didn't even tell my editor about it. So as I was writing it, I was like, I'm going to hold off to on this chapter. Do I really want to put myself in such a vulnerable place where it is one of the darkest moments of my life? And it was the lowest feeling of myself that I've ever had. And so it was a tough thing to even revisit because I haven't been to therapy. I haven't done that work, that internal work. And so for me, this book was that. And so writing about this experience was, it was so hard because I I haven't gone back to that place mentally in, in years, like in decades, right? And so yeah, writing it, I, I realized how much I hated myself. And I just wanted to be out of my body. I wanted to be a person that somebody would actually get the chance to get to know. 
But like in the body that I was in, no one gave me a chance. No one wanted to get to know who I was on the inside. You know, like I had this like really bubbly, fun personality. I was funny. There was so many characteristics to me that were more than my skin and my overweightness and all of the things. I wanted to just transform my soul and put it into somebody else. I think the dopamine hits that I would get even though I knew I'm not this blonde girl that I was pretending to be, the internal feeling I got of, oh my gosh, like this is validation that I have a good personality and that people like me. And I think that's what kind of kept me going in the rhythm of continuing to be her. And my biggest takeaway is that you can never stop being yourself because you're such a beautiful person and you have so much individuality. Every single one of us does. And we have to let that shine. I can totally see why a young girl that's 16 would want to basically cosplay as a cute cheerleader, blonde hair, blue eyed, white girl. I get it. And that's the unfortunate impact that these systems have on all of us, right? The girl that I was pretending to be, her and her parents were the catalyst to changing my entire life. And so it was a profound thing that happened to me that really was supposed to happen to me. But for folks that are listening, what happened? Yeah, it was one of the guys that I was talking to was somebody that I actually knew in real life. And I never did that because I was like, oh, I don't want to ever mix the two lives ever. But I had a big crush on him. So I was like, you know what? Something came over me and I did it. And he had asked me to prom and it was like months out. I was just, you know what? I'm just going to say yes. And then a month later, I thought about it and I was like, wait a minute. This has a real life consequences because he told me that his mom got him a tux, spent money doing it and all these things. And I had to be like, you know what? I can't go anymore. And that broke his heart. It was such a moment that I was like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? This is actually hurting people. This is hurting myself. This is going to hurt my family. And so I stopped, but then it caught up to me and they found out about it later. And so one time after tennis practice, I came home and my parents were like, do you have something to tell us? Like, we have to go into the police station and talk about this. And I was just this young girl. I had no idea. And of course, I'm also a foreign girl. Like, and my parents are immigrants too. And they were freaking out. They were like, I don't have any help in this department. Like, we don't have a lawyer. We don't have anything. Like, how are we going to get through this? And all we could do is just apologize and speak from the heart and say, hey, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't realize how much impact this would have on other people's lives. And I think that really resonated with her parents. And they were like, I think that she's going to learn from this. And so we're not going to like press charges or do anything. When something that impactful happens in your life, all you can do is take a step back and do a retro and kind of say, okay, what am I doing? Why did I do that? And what can I do to become a better person? New year, new shoes. That's how the saying goes, right? It's Victoria from Team Girl Boss, and I think we should all make a pact to say goodbye to blisters and unsupportive soles this year and only invest in footwear that is stylish, comfortable, and sustainable. That's why I love Vaya. Each pair is made from earth-conscious materials like recycled water bottles, vegan leather, and wool. I have my eye on the Margot flats, which literally go with everything in my closet and the Aria flats with a cute cheetah motif for a fun date night look. Get 15% off with the code GIRLBOSS15 at vivaya.com slash girlbossradio. That's V-I-V-A 
bit.ly.com slash girlbossradio or hit the link in the description. Thank me later. You're listening to my conversation with Deep D from Love is Blind. Next up, Deep D sets the record straight on her relationship with Kyle and where they're currently at. Let's get back into it. One thing that I thought was interesting is the connection that it has to your experience on Love is Blind. I thought that that was so interesting that 15 years later, you find yourself on a reality TV show where no one knows what you look like. All they know is your personality. Did it feel like a familiar place? (laughs) I suppress those memories so hard that I didn't even make the connection until I was writing the book. And then that's when I realized, I was like, whoa, like this show means so much more than just, I would tell people, oh, I did the show because I wanted a unique love story. And that's true, but it was so much more than that. It was finding acceptance as a person instead of what you look like physically. And yes, physicality does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't. Attraction is real. I totally get all of that. But is it the most important thing? And so I think that's really what that experience has taught me is that there's more to value than just finding somebody attractive. So like, even for me, I was trying to find men that I thought were like super attractive, right? Did I give people maybe who are average looking a chance? That's my lesson too. It's like, you don't have to find value in yourself because of how your partner looks and how attractive they are. It's about what they stand for and their values and their outlook on life and their future goals. And so took a lot away from it. I've mentioned this a few times, but for folks that haven't heard this just yet, we always do a pre-call and the pre-call is a way for us to kind of get aligned on what we're going to talk about because there's so much to talk about with the women that we meet with for our podcast for Girl Boss. And then of course, as a career podcast, it's important to kind of understand your professional journey. I want to get to know people before I hop on a call and, and ask them all these personal intimate questions. But one thing I did say is we're not spending a lot of time talking about the men that you came across in your journey on Love is Blind. Who cares about them? (laughs) Period. But when we think about this amazing professional milestone for you, right? You went off, you wrote a book, you had this big, exciting launch date. And this is on the tail end of you being this breakout star that quite frankly, had like a pretty, from an outside perspective, traumatizing experience with a man on that show. You found a connection with someone else as well. So for folks that haven't watched Love is Blind, that aren't aware of the story, Very briefly, let's hold a tiny little bit of space for Kyle and talk about the relationship that you two built after everything shook out, no pun intended, with Shake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Kyle, Kyle came in left field. I mean, he was my number two person on the show. We we did connect. And after a couple months of the, the show wrapping, we started to hang out and we built a really amazing connection of a friendship. Obviously, there was a little bit more than that there, but we were really scared to jump into a relationship, especially after we both had a traumatizing experience. And so we weren't quick to jump into anything. But yeah, we kind of built a thing. And we started dating a little bit after all of that. So that's a little synopsis. There's a big question mark about your relationship because for folks that watched After the Altar, they were like, okay, are they, are they not dating? People were curious, like your community wanted to know what was going on. Did you eventually find love with Kyle? And I think there was a lot of people that were really excited. Now, I observed something a bit strange on the day of your launch for your book. And on the same day, Kyle chose to share 
an Instagram post or a story about how you are no longer together and he's now dating someone new. And I couldn't help but think, did Deep Dean know about this? Was this planned? Is this something that they did to kind of, is this like a publicity stunt? Did you know that Kyle was going to release the information about where you stood in your relationship on the day of your book launch? No, no, I was blindsided. I had no idea he was going to do that. And, you know, I haven't spoken to him since. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So Deepi's a very kind, loving person. (laughs) (laughs) Very sweet. And I think that what I will share of my own personal thoughts of this is I think that there's nothing worse than a man that will use the professional milestone of a woman to build up his own social capital. I'll let our viewers and listeners and everything kind of sit with that as they please. Shame on Kyle and good for you for pressing forward and for just enjoying that moment nevertheless, which I thought was great. You gave it no airtime. Nope, nope. Got to keep moving on, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Because we're not spending much time talking about Shake or Kyle. That's as much as we're going to say about them today. I wanted to ask you a little bit about reality TV and do you think you'd ever do it again? Absolutely not. I mean, maybe if it's a different type of reality, but dating, could you imagine dating? Uh, I couldn't, I don't think that I'm going to find love on a reality TV show again. That's just not gonna. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so when you went into Love is Blind, did you have any anticipation of the stardom and the community that would come from your, not your role, but you sharing your experience and being on the show? No, absolutely not. In fact, while the show was airing, I was getting a lot of heat actually because people were just so upset with me for not having confidence or having self-esteem and like picking the douchebag or whatever. And they were like, how could she not see how she's staying with him? And there was so much hate from that. And I didn't really get the love until I said those three words at the altar, which was, you know, I choose myself. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, like I cannot believe how much these three words have resonated with people and help them leave marriages, abusive relationships, seeing their own self-worth. And I was just like, wow, like now I know why I was meant to go through all the pain that I went through. And it was for that moment and everything else, you know, it's whatever it's, it, it was worth it for me. Absolutely. And as a single woman, I was sitting there watching your episode and I was one of those viewers. I was like, what is going on with Deep Deep? And I was just like, oh my goodness, like why, why him? And I think that it's so interesting how as a consumer of reality TV and not someone that's ever done it, I have had very little empathy towards people that have been on these shows. And in some cases haven't acted from a place of like compassion or grace. Oftentimes when you have an issue with someone that you've never met. It's usually just you projecting your own shit, right? And I think that I saw myself in you and I saw versions of myself that I have been deeply frustrated with. It took me a while for me to get to the moment where I could say no, because I didn't want to, because I was seeing a little bit of growth in him in the way that he would talk. And like, he, he started to understand my perspective. And I was like, wait a minute, like we as human beings have to give each other grace and compassion to be able to change and allow you to have that growth in that environment. And so I wanted that for him, but I realized we're not in the business of changing people. Change is so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when you said, I, I, I choose, I choose myself. It was just like, 
I remember leaping off of my couch and being like, yes. And like the next day we had a Love is Blind Slack channel at my work and everyone was deeply interested in like having conversations about it. So we were all cheering and rooting for you. And I think that there was a lot of people that resonated with those three words. So what provoked you to say that to Shake at that time? What brought you to that point? Yeah, I think just a couple of days before we're kind of still going through this process. And I thought to myself, you know, like we're living together. I literally, we were like acting like husband and wife. Like I would literally make this kid lunches, you know, I would take care of his dog and like, you know, he had such a busy work schedule. So I was like literally acting like the wife, but then I wasn't getting he wasn't making any growth and seeing me as a different person. The only thing that he could see is my body, my stretch marks, my flaws and saying, you know what, I can never be with that type of person. And so, you know, I realized towards the end there, I was like, what am I doing? Here I am again, my entire life, I've been trying to prove my worth to at least one person. And Shake is the type of person that I looked for as validation my entire life. And so for me not to be able to find that, I think I kind of took it as like a competition. Like I know I'm worth it and I know he's going to see it. But towards the end there, I was like, nope, no chance. Why am I trying to prove myself? And everything that I had ever learned up until that point, I was like, this is a test to see if you had actually learned what you have been trying to learn this entire time. And so thankfully I passed the test because I could not imagine saying yes. Yeah, I think that choosing yourself in today's world is a radical choice. I made the radical decision to choose myself earlier this weekend. I have been single for a year and a half. I met the guy that I thought was the perfect guy for me. And it just wasn't for me. I'm still sitting with it. I don't know how I feel about it. Even when you make the right decision for yourself, it doesn't mean it's the easiest decision because you do have to sit with it and you have to go through the process of acknowledging that you did do something very hard. I really love what you said there. And I'm curious, have you heard the new Miley Cyrus song, Flowers? I've listened to it a thousand times already. <laughs> Literally yes. a thousand times. Yeah. I was like, yes, the, it's so powerful. It's so simple, but so powerful. I think it's the only song I've listened to for three days. Yeah, honestly. So at Girl Boss Radio, we are all about defining success on our own terms. And I wanted to ask you today, when was the first time you ever felt successful? The first time ever was when I got my first big girl job, because after I graduated college, it took me a year and a half to get there. And I was going into a completely new industry. And I was like, you know what, I'm never going to get it. Like, I'm just going to settle. Like, let me just go be a bartender. Let me just go do something else. Like in the meantime, I need to make money. And my mom kept pushing me and she's like, no, just keep going. Just keep attaining skills. But I realized like that was probably the first time I was like, oh my gosh, I did it. But then realizing now at 32, like I'm about to be 32, that you unlock a new level of success every single time you hit a new milestone or are faced with adversity. Do you feel like you are successful today? Absolutely. Because I'm happy with where I am in life. I'm happy with the person that I've become. And I realized that I have the tools and skills that if anything did happen to me, I would know how to react and how to get myself out of it or to kind of just how to tackle life essentially. So I actually asked my Instagram community if they had a question for you. And I had someone send, it was really sweet. Everyone was like, I love her. Just let her know I say hello and tell her I think she's amazing. But the one that I got from 
Jess. Uh, so shout out to Jess, uh, who's my friend on Instagram. And she asked, what is next for Deep D? I have a podcast coming out, which is great. It's been in the works. But after that, I really don't know what I have next coming, which is actually for me a really good place to be in. So drop the D's on this podcast. Do you have like the name? Are you saving this? Like what's going to be the central focus of the podcast? Okay, so I'm keeping it consistent. It's just going to be called Life with Deeps. And every and every episode, I'm going to have a guest on. And whatever their niche is, whatever their life experience is, I want to talk to them about it and also give my listeners kind of like a little bit of a homework assignment to be like, hey, this week, go work on this because this person's experience has taught them this and it could, you know, kind of help your life too. So kind of like centered around that and we'll have a little bit of fun along the way too. I love that. Love that idea. So for this podcast that you're launching, do you have some, I'm big on manifestation. So like speaking things into existence, do you have any dream podcast guests? I think mine would be Jay Shetty. Really? Yes. I just love everything that he says, him and his wife, just they resonate with me so much. And he's done the internal work and I aspire to be there. So, so before we wrap up, we always do rapid fire questions with all of our guests. My first question is, what is your go-to snack when you're working? Ooh, popcorn. Mm, I'm a popcorn girly too. Love popcorn. What time do you typically wake up in the morning? Around seven. Okay. Wow. That's early. Yeah. I'm a happy morning girl. (laughs) Okay. That's amazing. And how many unread emails do you currently have in your inbox? Oh my God. I have 36,000. You and I are so similar. (laughs) Finally, someone, the last few people I've interviewed, they're all like zero, zero, zero. I was like, who are these phenoms? Like, that is amazing. I, I'm shocked. Productivity goals, period. Well, Deep T, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I think you were super vulnerable and shared so much. And before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to share with the Girl Boss community? Just continue showing up for yourself every single day and find balance in life. I think that's what life is all about. So yeah, and thank you so much for having me on. It was so nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to my chat with Deep D. I don't know about you, but 2023 is the year we are not letting men ride our coattails to fame, period. We have one episode left of this season of Girlboss Radio, so keep your reviews and comments coming. It makes my day to read them. This podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming.